Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Make a Change podcast. I'm your host, Tira Ashley. Today, we're going to be talking about being triggered and particularly ways to handle and communicate with people when we are triggered. While we may be kind and sensible people, sometimes when we're triggered, we revert back to our default settings. All of a sudden, this wonderful personal development that we've been doing temporarily goes down the drain. A lot of times, it's not about the situation at hand, but situations that happened in the past that this current situation is mirroring. All right, let's get started. So before we start talking about techniques, I want to talk about something that people tend to do that can get us completely triggered before we even know what's going on or understand the situation. Assumptions. My mother always used to say that when you assume, you make an ass out of you and an ass out of me. (laughs) Although it's like a silly little saying, there's a lot of truth to it. I actually think about that all the time. I find that a lot of my self-generated unhappiness comes from making assumptions about people and situations. Like it's never going to work out, they're mad at me, they think I'm stupid, something must be wrong, they usually send an emoji when they say hi. (laughs) The truth is, you never really know what people are thinking until you ask them, even if you know them really well. An example would be that you get a message from somebody, maybe somebody you just started dating, and they say, I need to talk to you about something. For the record, if you're the type of person who just sends an ominous text that says you need to talk about something without context and then wait forever to respond, go fuck yourself. That is from those of us who have crippling anxiety. Anyway, you get the text and all of a sudden you're running through everything you've ever done, every mistake you've ever made. Sometimes it's even worse if you haven't done anything wrong. You start making assumptions about the situation and then an hour later they text back and they just wanted to talk about your weekend plans so they could potentially ask you to take a trip together. Now you've wasted an hour of your life worrying about literally nothing, a situation that wasn't even real. You made it up in your head. And I see people do this all the time uh, with communication stuff. I think a lot of times I'll hear, she hates me or like she thinks I'm whatever. And I'll ask, did she did she say that? And they'll be like, well, no, but her emoji usage is like really off these days. It's like, yeah, but you don't you don't know yet. You actually never know what people are thinking unless you ask. And even still, they could lie, but there's probably a better chance that they're going to tell you what's really going on if you ask. It's important to remember that more or less, everyone feels like the world revolves around them. Therefore, people usually aren't that focused on each other. A lot of times a sassy remark, being ignored, etc. has nothing to do with you. Sometimes it does. Which is why it's important to make sure. Before you've made sure, try not to worry about it. Remind yourself that you don't know if this is a bad situation yet. Remind yourself that this is not the same as the last situation, uh, and there's still time to turn it around. If you have to make an assumption about the situation, which, let's face it, we usually do, or, I mean, not that we have to, but we usually end up doing it either way, you can make a good assumption. 
I know it seems like they're mad, but I haven't done anything I can think of, so I'm going to ask what's wrong, and in the meantime, I'm going to assume that it's not about me. So next time you find yourself making assumptions about a situation, try to replace it with the fact that you simply do not know yet. Then you can gather data about the situation until you know for sure. This leads me into the first little trick to use when you're triggered that I'm going to talk about, which is a technique from Brene Brown. It's just a few steps and questions you can ask yourself. One, when an uncomfortable or triggering situation arises, breathe. This may seem obvious, but a lot of us actually start holding our breath when we tense up. I'm super guilty of that. Two, collect data on the situation. Make sure you fully understand what is happening before you start freaking out. A lot of times it's not as bad as we think it is. Three, ask yourself, is this worth freaking out over? Four, finally ask yourself, will freaking out help the situation? Now, this is a really powerful technique because the last question will pretty much always diffuse the tension because the truth is that freaking out never helps situations. It pretty much universally makes them worse. So I'll give you an example. This is the one Brene used, which I thought was brilliant. Um, So let's say your coworker comes up to you and says, ooh, I heard that you're getting fired. First, breathe. This is a scary situation. This is triggering. Uh... Two, collect data. So where did you hear that? Did you hear it from our boss? And the person says, well, I heard it, I heard it from Gary in accounting. Oh, did Gary hear it from our boss? Well, no, I'm not sure where he heard it actually. Okay, so you don't actually know anything. You just heard something. <laughs> and then... Ask yourself if it's worth freaking out over. Is this worth freaking out over? Probably not until I talk to my boss, right? And then the fourth one isn't even relevant. So that's very powerful. I definitely use that technique when I'm triggered. And it has been extremely helpful for me. The next technique is kind of similar. It's from Byron Katie, which she simply calls the work. When The work is when a situation arises... She has you ask yourself four questions. One, is it true? Two, can you absolutely know that it's true? Three, how do you react? What happens when you believe that thought? Four, who would you be without that thought? After that, she has you turn the thought around. So the example she used would be, Paul lied to me. One, is it true? Two, Can you absolutely know that's true? Yes or no? Three, how do you react? What happens when you believe that thought? Four, who or what would you be without that thought? And then you turn it around. Instead of Paul lied to me, it becomes I lied to me. I lied to Paul. Paul didn't lie to me. Paul told me the truth. And then you start to visualize the situation. This is a part that's kind of meditative. And contemplate how each turnaround is true or truer. Basically, a lot of these techniques are kind of just about flipping things on their head. And I think this is another one of those. I, I have to be honest. Since I haven't read her book, I've only done some online research and listened to podcasts. I don't know if I have that deep of an understanding of the work. I just know the questions and answer them. And even just knowing that much has been really helpful for me. 
If you want to learn more about The Work with Byron Katie or read one of her books, you can go to thework.org. I'll put that in the show notes as well. Okay, the last thing I want to talk about today is nonviolent communication. When I was a teenager, I was very, very snarky, and I can't fully remember the context to this, but as a punishment, my mom made me take nonviolent communication courses. And at the time, I thought it was absolutely ridiculous, but it has ended up being a really powerful tool that I use in my life all the time. I pretty much every time I argue with someone, I try to use nonviolent communication, which I will probably refer to here on out as NVC. So NVC or nonviolent communication consists of two parts: to express yourself honestly and listen honestly. Both parts include using the four elements of nonviolent communication: observation, feelings, needs, and requests. So we're going to go through the four pillars, starting with observation. Observations are what we see or hear that we identify as the stimulus to our reactions. Our aim is to describe what we are reacting to concretely, specifically, and neutrally. This observation gives the context for our expression of feelings and needs. The key to making an observation is to separate our own judgments, evaluations, or interpretations from our description of what happened. For example, if we say, you're an asshole, the other person may disagree. Well, if we say, when I walked into the office and I didn't hear you say hello to me, the other person is more likely to recognize the moment that is being described, especially because they're not being blamed in that moment. When we are able to describe what we see or hear in observation language without mixing in evaluation or right and wrong, such as the part about the other person being an ass, we raise the likelihood that the person listening to us will hear the first step without immediately wanting to respond, and therefore they'll be willing to hear our feelings and needs, instead of feeling like they have to defend themselves immediately. Learning to translate judgments and interpretations into observation language moves us away from right and wrong thinking and helps us take responsibility for our reactions by directing our attention to our personal needs as a source of our feelings rather than to the other person. Second pillar, feelings. Feelings represent our emotional experience and physical sensations associated with our needs that have been met or remain unmet. Our aim is to identify, name, and connect with those feelings. The key to identifying and expressing feelings is to focus on words that describe our inner experience rather than describe our interpretations of other people's actions. For example, I feel lonely describes an inner experience, while I feel like you don't love me anymore describes an interpretation of how another person may be feeling. When we're trying to take the blame out of how we communicate, which helps the situation stay calm. You always want it to be an I statement. I feel sad. I feel angry. Not, you're being mean, and that is why I am mad. When we express our feelings, we continue the process of taking responsibility for our own experience, which helps others hear what's important to us with less likelihood of hearing criticism or blame of themselves. This increases the likelihood that the other person will respond in a way that meets both of your needs. Which leads us to needs. 
Human beings share key needs for survival, hydration, nourishment, rest, shelter, and connection, to name a few. We also share many other needs, although we may experience them to varying degrees and may experience them more or less intensely at various moments. In the context of nonviolent communication, needs refer to what is most alive in us, our core values and deepest human longings. Understanding, naming, and connecting with our needs helps us improve our relationship with ourselves as well as foster understanding with others, so we are all more likely to take actions that meet everybody's needs. The key to identifying and expressing needs is to focus on words that describe the shared human experience rather than words that describe particular strategies to meet those needs. Whenever we include a person, a location, an action, a time, or an object in our expression of what we want, we are describing a strategy rather than a need. For example, I want you to come to my party may be a particular strategy to meet a need for love and connection, but love and connection is the need. In this case, we have a person, an action, an implied time and location in the original statement. The internal shift from focusing on a specific strategy to connecting with needs often results in a sense of power and liberation. We can free ourselves from being attached to one particular strategy by identifying the underlying needs and exploring alternative strategy strategies. So if your need is for love and connection, the answer doesn't have to be that the other person comes to your party. You can find another way to fulfill that need. Feelings arise when our needs are met or not met, which happens at every moment of life, pretty much. Our feelings are related to the trigger, but they are not caused by the trigger. Their source is our own experience of met or unmet needs. By connecting our feelings with our needs, therefore, we take full responsibility for our own feelings, freeing us from and others from fault and blame. And by expressing our unique experience in the moment of shared human reality of needs, we create the most likely opportunity for another person to see our humanity and experience empathy with understanding us. There is a list of NVC-approved feelings and needs at baynvc.org. I'll put that in the show notes. In order to meet our needs, we make requests to assess how likely we are to get cooperation for strategies we have in mind to meet those needs. Our aim is to identify and express specific action that we believe will serve this purpose and then check with others involved to see about their willingness to participate in meeting needs in this way. In a given moment, it is our connection with another that determines the quality of their response to our request. Therefore, often our requests in the moment are connection requests intended to foster connection and understanding and to determine whether we have sufficiently connected to move to a solution request. An example of a connection request would be, would you tell me how you feel about this? Questions like this bring you closer. An example of a solution request might be, would you be willing to take your shoes off when you come into my house? The spirit of requests relies on our willingness to hear and know, and to continue to work with ourselves and others to find ways to meet everyone's needs. People have to be able to say no to you. Whether we are making a request or a demand is often evident by a response to our request being denied. A denied demand will lead to punitive consequences. A denied request most often will lead to further dialogue. 
If we recognize that no is an expression of some need that is preventing the other person from saying yes, if we trust that through dialogue we can find strategies to meet both our needs, no is simply information to alert us that saying yes to our request may be too costly in terms of the other person's needs. We can then continue to seek connection and understanding to allow additional strategies to arise that will work to meet more needs. Essentially, it's a way to communicate and make sure that both people's needs are getting met. To increase the likelihood that our requests would be understood, we attempt to use language that is concrete and doable as possible. And that is truly a request rather than a demand. For example, I would like you to always come on time is unlikely to be doable, especially using the word always or every time. While would you be willing to spend 15 minutes with me talking about what may help you arrive at 9 a.m. to our meetings is concrete and doable. It invites dialogue. While a person may assent to the former question, yes, I'll always come on time. Our deeper needs for connection, confidence, trust, responsibility, respect, are likely to remain unmet. It cuts off the communication. If someone agrees to our request out of fear, guilt, shame, obligation, or the desire for reward, this compromises the quality of connection and trust between us. When we are able to express a clear request, we raise the likelihood that the person listening will experience choice in their response. As a consequence, while we may not gain immediate assent to our wishes, we are more likely to get our needs met over time because we're building trust that everyone's needs matter. And I have noticed that when you make people feel like their needs matter, they make you feel like your needs matter more often. Unless they're just like deeply selfish, which some people are. Maybe I shouldn't put a label on that. But a lot of people immediately soften when they feel like you're trying to meet their needs. Even just trying. Learning to make clear requests and shifting our consciousness to making requests in place of demands are very challenging skills for most people. People often find the quest part to be the hardest because of what NVC calls crisis of imagination. A difficulty in identifying a strategy that could easily meet our needs without being at the expense of others' needs. Even before considering the needs of others, the very act of coming up with what we call a positive, doable request can be challenging. We are habituated to think in terms of what we want people to stop doing, don't yell at me, and how we want them to be, treat me with respect, rather than what we want them to do. Would you be willing to lower your voice or talk with me later? Just notice the difference in those. With time, a deeper connection to our needs, to our creativity, expands to imagine and embrace more strategies. Shifting from demands to requests entails a leap in focus and a leap in faith. We shift from focusing on getting our needs met to focusing on the quality of connection that will allow us both to truly matter and ultimately have our needs met. Empathy. Expressing our own observations, feelings, needs, and requests to others is one part of NBC. The second part, which I actually think is the most important, is empathy. The process of connecting with another by guessing their feelings and needs. 
Empathic connection can sometimes happen silently, but in times of conflict, communicating to another person that we understand their feelings and that their needs matter can be the most powerful turning point in problem situations. Demonstrating that we have such understanding is not the same as agreeing to act in ways that don't meet our needs. Connecting empathically with another person is a way to meet our own needs for understanding, for connection, or others. At the same time, we hope that the empathy would meet the other person's needs as well and would aid both of us in finding strategies that would meet both our needs. The language of NVC can help us relate with others, but the heart of empathy is our ability to compassionately connect with our own and others' humanity. Offering our empathic presence in this sense is one strategy or request through which we can meet our own needs. It is a gift to another person and to ourselves of our full presence. When we use NVC to connect empathically, we use the same four components in the form of a question. Since we can never know what is going on inside the other, the other person will always be the ultimate authority on what is going on for them. Our empathy may meet other people's needs for understanding, or it may spark their own self-discovery. We can ask something like, when you see your ex with their new girlfriend or boyfriend, are you feeling sad because you need connection and you would like somebody new to connect with? Most often, an ongoing process of dialogue, there is no need to mention either the observation, it's usually clear in the context, or the request, since we are already acting on an assumed request for empathy. We might get to guessing a request when we've connected more, and we are ready to explore strategies. In the process of sharing empathy between two people, if both parties are able to connect at the level of feelings or needs, a transformation often happens in which one or both parties experience a shift in intention and attention. This can lead to a shift of needs or generate new reserves of kindness and generosity in seemingly impossible situations. So I want to give another dialogue example of this. Uh, this is something that my mom and I use a lot when we're fighting, and it's basically just reflecting back to the person what you think you see or hear them being upset about. So a lot of times it'll be, I hear, I'm hearing that you feel sad and hurt because I blew off something that we were supposed to do together. And the response might be, no, that's not what I'm feeling. I'm feeling angry because you blew it off. And then I say, okay, okay, you're feeling angry. I hear that because we were supposed to do something together that was important to you and we didn't do it. How about we do something together tomorrow instead? So you see how that was process of hearing the other person, reflecting back to them, what they had said, and then offering a solution. So that's just like a really simple version of it, but it's really useful. Uh, I have found that nothing diffuses an angry person like empathy. And this can go for yourself too. Which leads me to the last part of NVC, which is self-empathy. Both expression of our feelings and needs and empathic guesses of other feelings and needs are grounded in a particular consciousness which is at the heart of NVC. 
This consciousness is nurtured by the practice of self-empathy. In self-empathy, we are bringing the same compassionate attention to ourselves that we give to others while listening to them using NBC. This means listening through any interpretations and judgments we are making to clarify how we are in terms of our feelings and needs. This inner awareness and clarity supports us in choosing our next step, expressing ourselves to others, or receiving them with empathy. This next step is our request to ourselves about where we want to focus our attention. The practice of NVC entails an intention to connect compassionately with ourselves and with others, and an ability to keep our attention in the present moment, which includes being aware that sometimes in this present moment we are recalling the past or imagining the future. Often, self-empathy comes easy as we access our sensations, emotions, and needs to attune to how we are. However, in moments of conflict or reactivity to others, we may find ourselves reluctant to access an intention to connect compassionately, and we may falter in our capacity to attend to the present moment. Self-empathy at times like this have the power to transform our disconnected state of being and return us to our compassionate intention and present-oriented intention. With practice, many people find that self-empathy alone sometimes resolves inner conflicts and conflicts with others as it transforms our experience of life. All right, folks, that's all I've got for you today. Uh, I did make a Twitter for the podcast. If you want to find it, it is Make a Change Pod on Twitter. Uh, I haven't done much with it yet, but I'm going to be posting updates and probably fun information on there as well. And I'll probably post when a new podcast episode comes out. You can also find me on Instagram uh, at Tira Ashley, T I E R A A S H L E Y. If you like the show, please rate and review and subscribe. If you don't, uh, no further action needed on your part. (laughs) Thank you. All right, guys. Thanks for listening to Make a Change. See you next time.